Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. I'm Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we've got a special treat for you today because we are being joined on mic by our cherished and always dependable excellent producer Seth Nicholas Johnson to give you a little taste of a new podcast that Seth himself is a host of. Hello, everyone. Uh, It's excellent to see you all here on this side of the microphone. And um, yeah, it's a show I do called Record Store Society. And uh, Robert and Joe have been very kind enough to want to do a nice little crossover episode where we uh, break down some music videos in both these shows. So I'm I'm grateful and I'm happy to be here. It's gonna be fun. Now, before we get going here, uh, first of all, we said it's a new podcast, but you've been out for, for a little bit. So you have a number of episodes under the belt. Uh, so that's, that's important to drive home. So if anybody goes to the feed, they're not just going to find one or two episodes to choose from. There's going to be a wider selection. Can you go ahead and tell everyone out there how they can find Record Store Society? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess, first of all, the premise of the show is uh, very straightforward. It's basically just a talk show, but uh, amongst music nerds. Like, uh, the show, quote-unquote, takes place inside a record store where myself and my co-host, Tara Davies, we work at the record store. And then, quote-unquote, customers come into the store and we talk about music. So it's a glorified talk show, but we talk about music and we're very nerdy about it. We do a lot of top five countdown lists. We do a lot of like album of the month club. Let's really deep dive into this album. We'll Mm -hmm. play certain games where like we'll play a record backwards and you have to identify it. You know, just like the kind of goofy stuff you would do if you were a clerk in a record store killing time by just talking to your customers and, you know being real nerdy specifically about music. It's uh, it's an iHeart uh, radio podcast on the same network as you guys. And uh, if you just go to any of the podcast catchers, such as Spotify, iHeart, Stitcher, <laughs> um, all those, Apple, just type in Record Store Society. You'll find it right away. Now, Seth, I should have asked you this before. Does this come from personal experience? Did you ever actually work in a record store? I did, but I have to say it was a um, very uncool way of having that job. Um, When I was uh, in my very early college years, and actually, oh, and late high school years, late high school, early college, I worked in the music department of a Best Buy. (laughs) So um, I, I will say, in all fairness to myself, it was an enormous music section because this was in Portland, Oregon. And for some reason, I would say half of our store was just our CD department. And um, I don't know if that was special because of its location or or what, but at least for me, it was it was a wonderful experience inside this Best Buy. <laughs> so now what uh, half of a Best Buy today has got to be just like iPhone screen covers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Last time I was at a Best Buy, I think I saw like what, maybe one rack of CDs tops. Like it, it's... Yeah. It's shrunk enormously, but at least when I worked there in the, um, I guess this would have been the late ni- 90s, early 2000s, um, it was an enormous section of the store, was the CD and DVD section, which is where I worked. I can't say I ever did much CD shopping at Best Buy. I think I got my copy of Elton John Madman Across the Water at, at a <laughs> at Best, Best Buy. Buy. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing I'll never know, because obviously I only worked at the one Best Buy, at, I, there, there were some extremely deep cut choices there. Like you could get some moldy peaches, you could get some Danny Cohen, you could get some Coco Rosie at this Best Buy in Portland, Oregon. And mm-hmm. I presume we just happened to have like I don't know a supplier that was 
catering to our audiences, but uh, I don't know. It was a really good Best Buy for some reason. Hmm. But so you didn't like hang around with your Best Buy colleagues talking about bad brains and stiff little fingers and stuff. We actually kind of did. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was a nice experience. However, it was at a Best Buy. So not really that cool. You had the blue shirts. Yes, most definitely. <laughs> that is the uniform of the gods. All right. Well, basically, the idea for this episode, then, is we want to talk a bit about weird music videos. Normally on Weird House Cinema, we talk about weird films. And what is a music video, to some degree, uh, but um, but a short weird film, or a short film, anyway. Uh, Seth, you and I were talking about this a little bit um, off mic, I guess, yesterday. We were chatting back and forth um, about how you kind of have this... Um, there's this, there's this there's a wavelength uh, there are the varying degrees between just footage like like live footage of a of a performance or concert footage and then you can go all the way into actual short film territory where what you have created is no longer really a music video like i guess a lot of us or at least for my part i i think of music videos i think of those 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 video packages that were put out to promote uh, the album. And so you would see it, you'd hear it, and then you would go to, say, Camelot Music, and you would have to plop down, what, 20 bucks on this album? And this would be, for in my case, it would be my album for the month. I, I completely agree, but he- here's my question to you, Robert. What would you say thriller is? And I'm talking the full-length thriller mm. with the, you know, all, all, all the narrative. Is that a short film or is that a music video? I say it's still a music video, um, but it's it's certainly approaching that gray area, you know. Um, yeah, for sure. Did either of you guys ever buy a video single? This was a thing that was briefly a sort of media product that you could pay money for. I once bought a VHS tape that was the video cassette single of Ninja Rap by Vanilla yes. Ice, which was so it was the video for Ninja Rap from I guess it was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Two? Am yeah. I right about that? Secret, Secret of, the of the Ooze. Of the ooze. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but then also it had interviews with Vanilla Ice on the uh, on the you know the behind the scenes details for Ninja Rap. I, I definitely owned some of these, and I actually mm-hmm. really really enjoyed it. I'm going to say maybe like five years after the cassette video single was when they started basically putting out like the collected music videos of such and such artist on a DVD. Do you remember those those years? Yeah, there oh, were yeah. some really nice ones. Like we we used to have the one ones for like Michelle Gondry and yeah. I think Spike yeah. Jones. Yes. Yes. And, those were uh, the uh, director's label series of DVDs and I had the complete yeah. collection. I loved those. So good. A lot of those Michelle Gondry videos are so good. That uh like the one for Bjork Hyperballad is mm-hmm. That always sticks in my brain. It's Even amazing. if you're not that into the the tracks themselves, like the, you know, they're, they're just such nice pieces of, of filmmaking for sure. Yeah, yes. And I think that's the ultimate thing. Like when a music video is really good, like it makes you like a song you wouldn't otherwise be into. You know, it it could actually successfully shape and mold your musical interests based on the visuals associated with the sound. Um, and I think one of the most uh, like I remember like watching rap videos and like the weirder rap videos were very interesting in that it felt like they they almost gave a wider audience you know permission to get into rap mm. uh, in, in, in an interesting way. I think of stuff like um, you know like some of the ones like Dean Carr uh, directed he directed uh, one music video for uh, this track Puppet Masters by. Uh, 
uh, was it DJ Muggs and it had Dr. Dre and um, Be Real Be Real in it, you know, and it's like super weird uh, video with like a demonic pope and it's raining money and Be Real is a golden demon. Um, you know, it's stuff like that would just really suck me in. Yeah, you can really tell the difference between music videos that are themselves a sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, a fully realized artistic or at least entertainment product and those that are just kind of an afterthought. I think a lot of those came later on in in the history of music videos where it's like, eh, we need a, a video for the single. Mm-hmm. And so it would just be like footage of the band playing the song, cutting back and forth between that and weird Things just uh, like oh you know here's like a head going map 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 or something. Uh, yeah, well, the, the I, '90s were full of these. Yeah, but you know some of those were great. That could be well done. Uh, but <laughs> but I, th- I think when I think of like a proto music video, like one example that instantly comes to mind is Black Sabbath's Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where it's basically a like a staged concert performance with like some you know kind of psychedelic graphics in the background. Mm-hmm. Y'all know the music video for Kansas, Dust in the Wind? Yes. Yes, I do. I, I would say that's a that's an early example of a, a category that I'm going to talk about in this episode called Normie Weird, which is a, a music video that is weirder than it meant to be, uh, because it just has the members of Kansas standing around looking like they're ready to go to prom. They're dressed in like frilly shirt tuxedos, and they're playing this this very cheesy song about uh, time passing and mortality. But the, the way it pans over their expressionless faces is really alienating. Well, I think with what both of you just said, there is a very real bell curve when it comes to the quality of music videos and whether or not MTV is actively playing music videos. Because the proto-music video, they were low budget and just no one really knew what they were doing. No one was really trying to do anything. And then post-MTV playing music videos, suddenly it dips down again and they're they're made for YouTube now, which is Mm -hmm. fine, but the budget is clearly not there anymore. Like almost no one is putting the same monetary, you know, investment into a music video now as they did in like, let's say 2003, you know, like it's it's a completely Hmm. different world. And um, here's, here's an example of, I guess, where the money's going now. If someone wants a really good music video... There's that amazing, I, I guess I'll, I'll call this a short film, uh, for Anima, the uh, Tom York music video directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It went direct to Netflix. So that's how hmm. they still got that money. That's how, they, that, that's how you know, Paul Thomas Anderson still got his paycheck, was Netflix had, had to write the, write, write, the, uh, write the check for him instead of it just going to YouTube, you know? I, I guess it's kind of like what was once, what would, could once be... Um uh, you know, you, you could you could say it's an expense in promoting the material. Now it's just an expense in, in part of the artistic expression itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Rob, do you want to jump right in uh, with the Wild Boys? Yeah. Uh, my my pick, my first pick here for uh, for for a, a favorite weird music video, and probably probably just my favorite music video in general. It's hard to to distinguish between the, the two classifications. It is the, the, the 1984 music video for Wild Boys by Duran Duran, directed by Russell McKay. Russell McKay, uh, some of you might remember, the director of Highlander, Highlander 2, um, uh, various other films, but also just a ton of music video work. He did uh, Total Eclipse of the Heart, often just, you know, really visually interesting um, 
often high energy or just, you know, multiple things going on at once in the music video. And this is a prime example of it. He directed a 1984 horror movie that I just watched earlier this year called Razorback, which is absolutely disgusting, but is also peak Russell Mulcahy. It really needs to be seen. It is it's a cross between an Australian Texas Chainsaw Massacre (laughs) and Jaws, but with a pig instead of a shark. Huh. Now, how how big is that pig? Uh, It's a very large pig. I mean, Mm. I would say at least uh, two horses size pig. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, It's a monster movie. So you got to have a monster pig, right? Right. And so part of it's a vendetta. You know, you got a you got a Quint type character who's on the hunt for this pig that killed his wife, I think. And so the pig must pay. But also it's set in Australia and it's full of the Australian, you know, the outback equivalent of the Sawyer family. (laughs) Yeah. So um, I haven't seen that one yet, but I really need to. There 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 are several key films on his uh, filmography that I haven't gotten to yet. But and likewise, I haven't seen anywhere near all of his uh, music videos, some of which I think are lower budget affairs. But this this is a big budget music video. And in my opinion, this is music video perfection. Mulcahy takes us on, to, on a rich sort of thunderdomey, subterranean, post-apocalyptic journey through a world that has cyborg worship, windmill-based torture of lead singer Simon Le Bon, uh, automotive crucifixion, hang gliding it has mutant monsters living in like the sewer water uh there's primal dance it's it's like it's essentially like a big Cirque du Soleil kind of number as well but there's this loose narrative structure that that isn't completely apparent and this is what I love about a good music video where you're not completely sure what the story is but there's a sense of the story there uh you know you have to sort of you pull the narrative out you kind of meet the the music video halfway yeah, it, it, this is a this is such a great video, and it strikes me as you said Thunderdome, and I guess that could be true. But I'd say by the timing, the thing that, that really struck me here would be the Road Warrior as an influence. Uh, like, so the Duran Duran guys are dressed like Mad Max with leather jackets and mm-hmm. asymmetrical gloves, and the Wild Boys, the the titular Wild Boys, are dressed like the soldiers of Lord Humongous. Uh, they're they're all sort of that Vernon Wells character, you know, be, be still my dog of war. Mm-hmm. And they really prefigure the war boys from Fury Road. Now, of course, that movie wouldn't come until many, you know, decades later. But they're so similar. I almost wonder if the war boys in George Miller's movie were inspired by the people dancing in this Wild Boys video, which was probably inspired by George Miller's The Road Warrior. Yeah, I mean, I, I love George Miller, but imagine if Russell McCahey had had gotten to make his um, his own post-apocalyptic uh, film. I mean, he, he did do some films later on that I think you could classify as post-apocalyptic. But apparently with this, the genesis of this video is that Mulcahy was interested in directing an adaptation of William S. Burroughs' The Wild Boys, A Book of the Dead, which I have not read, but I, I have read that it's supposed to be like an apocalyptic tale of a homosexual youth rebellion against Western civilization. Um, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, like I say, I haven't read it, so I don't know exactly how all that, how all that pans out. Or, you know, given the work of Burroughs, like how much that needs to be then recreated to take on anything like a narrative form. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it would seem that much of this music video reflects you know, some of the aesthetic ideas and maybe some of the plot elements associated with that never realized project. This actually kind of ties into my impressions of this music video as a child when I first saw it, 
which was, um, if I'm sure you'll remember and anyone listening remembers, there were often a lot of movie tie-in music videos where they would show yeah. clips from the movie he kind of embedded into the music video. When I saw this as a kid, I was convinced it was some sort of movie tie-in for a film that I had never heard of. And watching the full-length version, because like there, there's like the MTV version, which is what, maybe four minutes or so, and then the full-length version, which Rob shared with us, which is at least twice as long. It, wow. It, so many elements feel like just chunks out of a movie. And um, it's astonishing how much money they spent on this with no actual narrative or or actual, I guess, through line or tie-in. It, it just seems like money for money's sake and a big pile. And I, I, I think it's beautiful <laughs> for that, you know? This was a great waste of money. Uh, I agree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah the, so the version that we were looking at that's like longer than just, I guess, what would you call it? I don't know, the, the video edit. Uh, the, the long version is known as the long arena version now on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And it has all this stuff in it. It has this Pat Benatar looking woman in a water world cage being menaced by a robot that looks like one of those Boston Dynamics four-legged robots, but up on stilts. Mm-hmm. And it's got, uh, yeah, it's got the the leather masochistic windmill water torture device, which is great. Uh, which I uh, understand almost uh, drowned uh, Simon Laban. Like it was. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, he's in interviews. He's talked about that. Where, um, or I don't know. It depends. I think he's also kind of downplayed the idea that he almost drowned. But it sounds like it was it was not pleasant to film. Right. So they've got him on one of the. Uh, what would you call the thing? One of the flags, one of the wings of a windmill mm-hmm. going around. And every time he goes to the bottom of it, his head goes under the water. Yeah. And he's still got to sing. Yeah. But he's actually, he's getting tortured a lot in the extended version of the music video. You already mentioned that there's automotive crucifixion that you meant that literally, like at one point he's being crucified on the roof of an upturned car. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It has a lot of, um, I guess ultimately there's some there there's some some BDSM um elements to this uh this this one there's a it's a very erotic video in in many respects mm-hmm. uh but also with you know with just all this beautiful weirdness it's uh it's yeah it's quite a video to have watched when you were young I watched it as a kid and I was I just remember like not really knowing what all was going on here but I was in I loved it I loved the uh, the weirdness the der- the darkness the erotic charge of the whole thing and it's a precursor uh, to Highlander 2, because, uh, Joe, I know you probably noticed that um, we have these feathered, leather-bound, hang-gliding um, uh, guys in this uh, that really reminded me a lot of the immortal assassins, Corda and Reno, who pop up in the future of Highlander 2. Now, when you call them immortal assassins, I, I think you may be somewhat kowtowing to the later cuts of Highlander 2, because what you should <laughs> say is the assassins from the planet Zeist. That is what they are in the original cut. Right. But once they're on Earth, they're immortal, right? Isn't that how it works? Oh, well, maybe it is. Okay. Yeah. I, I can see that point. I'm sorry. Because then he I... cuts their heads off and he gets the quickening, right? That's true. Yes. Uh, so, uh, Seth, you've seen Highlander 2, The Quickening? Oh, of course. Yes. The original cut, right? Not, not any of that redone crap? I have to presume it's the original cut, but I would have to, like, you know, really investigate to make sure. <laughs> the original cut is the one where, where they're on the planet Zeist, and that is where the immortals originally come from. That is the version I have seen, yes. Okay, yes. Yeah. That's the only one worth seeing. Okay. okay so, uh, the, the, the situation in Highlander 2, The Quickening, is that uh, Connor McLeod, the survivor of the first time Highlander movie, the winner of the prize. You know, he's he's uh, growing old, I guess, in the future. He's become a scientist, and the world is now very Blade Runner-y. The, 
they've like clouded over the atmosphere with the, some kind of thing that they had to put up there because the ozone layer was gone. And, uh, and so earth is just crap now. It just sucks to be here. And, uh, for some reason, Michael Ironside on the planet Zeist decides, well, I'm sick of waiting around for Connor McLeod to get killed on earth since he was banished there millions of years ago. I'm going to send assassins to get him now. Like he got tired of waiting for millions of years and the assassins show up and they're these flying bird men who who have this horrible clown laugh <laughs> and one of their heads gets chopped off when Connor McLeod knocks them under a train and the train wheel rolls over their neck it's a great set piece and a great great action sequence <laughs> Uh, but then, but then you get to see Christopher uh, Lambert in old man makeup turn back into young, vigorous, healthy thirty-something Lambert, and it's a sight to see. Sorry, I went on uh, uh, Highlander two tangent. No, no, it, it is it is to be expected when we're talking about uh, Russell McKay's work, especially again since this this music video there are so, there is some connective tissue between this and Highlander two, uh, and and even with Highlander because uh, I was reading like some of the people behind this film. Uh, not all music videos have that robust of an IMDb profile, but uh, this one lists uh, Nick uh, Malley. Uh, as one of the makeup artists on it. And uh, Nick worked on a ton of films, including like uh, The Man with the Golden Gun, the first two Star Wars films, The Shining, Clash of the Titans, Life Force Krull. And then his final film was Highlander 1. Uh, yeah, I can absolutely see that. I mean, I just will say again, this is a movie. Uh, movie. It's not a movie. This this music video looks great. It has like, you know, top top shelf movie level costumes and special effects. There's one part where the people get attacked by a worm with teeth that comes out of the sewer water. Yeah. And it's like this, this big uh, kind of bizarre phallic uh, creature that latches onto your face and bites your face off. Uh, that that would have been at home in any A-list sci-fi horror movie of the eighties. Yeah. It looks good. It still holds up today. I mean, and also, I mean, how many music videos can you think of that have a great monster in them? Yeah. Fair point. I would say the only part to me that did not hold up that well, mostly just because like it was very obvious how it was happening. I'm sure you guys noticed this too. The animated segment where suddenly their tongues are coming out and their tails yep. are growing on the dancers, yep. it no longer quite matched up. And that was fine. Yeah. I, I like it in the context of the music video, but I think the practical effects were uh, a little bit better than their special effects. Yeah, I was a little surprised to to, to catch that on a, on a reviewing of it, to notice the... Uh, the the digital uh, effects on this because I did not really expect there to be any digital effects in this. They were very cartoony, video. like literally like yeah. hand drawn cells, cartoony, and it was just wasn't necessary. They had so much yeah. good practical effect work happening. It, it, they didn't need it. They they would have been fine without it. They were in post and they were like, man, I wish I'd put some prehensile tails on these on these wild boys. <laughs> we and still have like, some we, money we, left. We still in have the time. <laughs> Okay, I wonder if either of you guys have thoughts on the following question. Why are so many music videos of the 1980s set inside industrial spaces? I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, just some random rock song that mm -hmm. lyrically, thematically has nothing to do with oil refineries or steel manufacturing. And yet that's where they are for the video. Is there a reason that so many of these videos had the, the rockers singing amidst pipes and chains and sparks? I have a theory, which would be okay. 
in the early days, again, we're discussing the, the bell curve of production value for music videos. Mm-hmm. Early in the bell curve, before people really knew that MTV was worth putting all this money and energy into, someone quote-unquote shot the rodeo, where they went, hey, what do we have? We have access to this strange steel mill instant production value. We'll have the yeah. band hang out in there, throw on a, a fog machine. Perfect. We're good to go. But here's mm. where I bet it gets really funny. This is all speculation. But I would bet that not that long after that, someone would see that original you know, steel mill video and go, that's the place. All music videos got to take place in a steel mill. So they then built a fake steel mill and then completely, <laughs> you know, negated the, the, the entire production saving, you know, value of uh-huh. being in a steel mill. So uh, I, I, I'm just guessing, but that's my guess. Hmm. And then maybe like, you know, it lines up the decline of, uh, of American factories and the rise of the music video. <laughs> yes. Like everything was just in the right place at the right time. Video killed the steel industry. <laughs> yeah, a lot of abandoned industrial spaces and factories. It's like, what can we do with them now? Well, you can at least, you know, like rent them out to a film crew. Yeah, still pretty much the case. All right, Joe, uh, I think you have a selection here for us. And uh, basically, it's, it's a great way to, to get into this because we talked in, the, uh, in this previous uh, selection about what happens when a few little digital effects are added. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. So for this selection, first of all, I feel like I need to preface this by saying I, I often get the impression I've seen far fewer music videos than a lot of people my age. Uh, like a lot of people my age bring up some video they saw when they were a kid. And I'm like, oh, I never saw that. I guess I was just not a big MTV or VH1 viewer as a child. And most of the music videos I know I saw as an adult, like later, you know, looking them up on YouTube and stuff. I mean, I remember a few things, but uh, so it's not as deep in my brain as as it is for, for many other people. But for my first choice here, I, I do want to admit, I never saw this when I was younger. I only discovered it as an adult, but what a discovery it was. Uh, so there are lots of music videos that are explicitly intentionally weird. You know, we're going to talk about many more as we go on today. But for my first selection of the two, I would like to start with a category that I would call normie weird. And this is videos for extremely mundane, middle-of-the-road, mainstream music that clearly were not supposed to be exceedingly strange, and yet they are. This is an interesting uh, category, and yeah, I I see where you're going with this, because I think a lot of great, uh, great or at least weird music videos come out of this. Yes, and so my prime example here, the year is 1985. The artist is Mick Jagger. The song Hard Woman from the album She's the Boss. She's a hard woman to I think this was directed by a guy named John Whitney Jr. This this video actually has very little uh, easily accessible online information about it, but I'm pretty sure this guy was the director. Uh, IMDb contends that he was a producer on the movie The Last Starfighter, which I had a, a tape of as a kid and uh, great, greatly enjoyed. Uh, has a lot of good aliens in it. Uh, that he got special thanks for working on Tron. I'm not sure what he did, or maybe, maybe he was just a friend of Tron. And that he did some visual effects for Westworld, the old one, not the new one. And that he worked on something called the Jupiter Menace, which I had to look up. 
and it appears to be some kind of doomsday documentary predicting the imminent end of the world on the basis of a passage in the Bible and uh, what some psychics say and expert talking heads just like saying things about uh, cataclysm and nuclear war and all that. Involving Jupiter? Yeah, I, I, so I haven't watched the whole movie. I just skipped mm. around in it a bit, but it looks like a lot of fun. You know, so this in the 70s and 80s, uh, people often forget like a hugely, hugely popular genre of books and docu films like this were about the coming apocalypse. I mean, I think this was really one of the best selling books in the world was that uh, the late great planet Earth book, which was like a evangelical Christian, you know, the, the world is going to end in the year 1980 something or 1970 something uh, like hugely, hugely popular genre. And I think this fit into that at least partially. Yeah, because they were turning on the TV, they were looking at MTV music videos, and they said, surely the second coming is at hand. Right. They saw <laughs> Wild Boys, and they were like, oh, no, Jupiter is coming to smash the Earth. And I got so this movie hosted by George Kennedy. George ah. Kennedy. Wow. George Kennedy got to eat. <laughs> uh, I, I was looking up the this video as well on IMDb and, and did a little bit more digging. It's, yeah, it seems like John Whitney Jr. and this guy named Gary Demos – they had a company called Digital Productions, mm -hmm. and I guess they were like the go-to people at the time if you wanted uh, some sort of a digital effect in your film or music video, or in, as in this case, if you just wanted to build the entire thing out of digital effects. Yeah, and that's clearly the uh, the, the orientation here. I, this was a technology-first music video production. Now, as for the song itself, uh, I love Mick Jagger, but this is this is not good. Uh, the song is a crooning, slow jam rock lament about a breakup with a hard-hearted, gold-digging woman who unsentimentally leaves Mick Jagger alone with his tears and his regrets. Uh, and I believe the the song and the video are also supposed to be kind of steamy, but this is deeply <laughs> undercut by everything about it. Uh, as I said, you know, I, I do love the Rolling Stones. I'm not trying to be mean, but the, but yeah, this is this is not Mick Jagger's finest hour. <laughs> yeah, this, this is not not a good song. Like I <laughs> I prefer Teddy Bear from the last Weird House to this. <laughs> the Janet Agron, yeah, which I've now listened to many times. That's uh. <laughs> It's something. It's something specific. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this song is just like slow, you know, oh, uh, I gave her laughter. She wanted diamonds. And he it's, and it's just one of those complaining songs, right? Yeah. The problem is he was really good to her, but she didn't love him enough. And, and then she went on went on her way. And that was so mean. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so like. But he's writhing and dancing the whole time, right? So yes. it's like it's hard to really buy it as complaining because he's like, I'm unhappy. I'm <laughs> I'm having a bad time. No, I mean you look you look really pleased with yourself. Yeah, he does. He's like he he's really like got the strutting posture when they show the actual Mick Jagger. Like so at some points in this music video, he's animated, and other points it's just him in this uh brand new pink collared shirt this like they just took it out of the wrapper the collar is really starchy and he's like he's doing that thing where like the neck is really stiff he's holding his head super high up while he's singing <laughs> and uh so I, I guess they were encountering the problem okay how do we animate a video for this song it's just a standard sort of breakup lament that woman was mean to me and what they decided to do 
was set it in a 1985 computer-animated polygon village of Adobe architecture where the titular hard woman appears to be a kind of psychic modular robot <laughs> made out of neon gas just discharge tubes. And she does acts of telekinesis on bowls and kitchenware. <laughs> and then there is also a neon tube version of Mick Jagger, who for some reason is wearing a basketball jersey and at one point decapitates himself, juggles his own head and then immediately uh, grows the antlers of a stag out of his head. And I was trying to understand that. I don't think it's supposed to be a Wendigo type thing. I, I think maybe it's supposed to be that now that she has left him, he is single, meaning he's going stag. <laughs> oh, I thought maybe because this was the probably the best part of the, the, the whole thing for me. And I thought maybe it was like a green man thing and then he becomes yeah. this primal chaos god of the hunt or something but i think your interpretation is probably correct yeah no that would have been better You're like the the antlers come out and he's like i am now lord of the forest <laughs> and you, aren't you sad you left me because i could have given you endless mushrooms and mosses in the dark <laughs> uh but it, this this video seth I'm, I'm very interested in your point of view on this because of course you, you have experience with you know film production and animation but this video seems to me very much like the kind of obscene weirdness that can result from technology first filmmaking. And I'm open to being told I'm wrong here, but it, it, it seems like the kind of thing where a lot of the animation in it is not because it fit their artistic vision for what the video should be, but because here are some animations we know how to do or that we've already put together and we can just sort of slot them in here, uh, which could explain things like the, the hard woman doing telekinesis on bowls. <laughs> uh, yes, no, I, I, I fully agree with you. And, and I think it also, it also explains some of his wardrobe choices. So for example, um, a tank top is much easier to animate because you don't need to show the cloth of the shoulder of an arm actually interacting with the cloth of like the body of like the jacket or whatever. Oh my mm. God. It's much easier, much easier. And in fact, I think that explains why he's also kind of a wireframe as opposed to a full blown 3D figure. Because like, um, especially when digital animation, when an arm, leg, head, neck, whatever is moving, one of the hardest parts is disguising the clipping of the arm you know, physical 3D form going inside of the actual shoulder blade or, or, or you know, whatever. You, you don't want it to look like it's a bunch of polygons interacting and, and splicing into one another. You want to you hide it. So if they just have this, you know, neon stick man with, with, a, with a basketball jersey, they don't have to hide any of that. It, it can be just that is what's happening. And, and almost like in, um, do you guys remember that video game Rayman? Do you guys remember that guy? Yeah. Remember, yeah, he, yeah, has, yeah. he has no arms mm -hmm. and no legs, but he has hands and feet. And that's oh. for the same purpose. It's so you can just animate those hands, gesticulating everything that's happening, very, very full of life, full of energy. But you don't have to worry about that arm accidentally clipping into the body and ruining the illusion of life, you know? Huh. Neat. Wow, I'm so glad we have you here for this insight, Seth. <laughs> and then in addition to that, um, I would presume that this Adobe Village was already on some animator's hard drive, that they had built <laughs> it either as like a test of the capabilities of their software, or perhaps they had another production in mind. Um, I, I can say from my own personal experience, uh, there was a forest scene that I was animating for a music video. And um, to, to draw something from scratch, obviously, takes a lot of time. Uh, a forest, this was a pine forest. So lots of little, you know, uh, craggly edges, of course, to every single tree, et cetera, et cetera. By the mm -hmm. time I finished with it, 
around the same time, I also needed uh, an album cover that I was working on, and there was a tattoo that I was designing. And I thought, hey, <laughs> this is all three now. <laughs> and that one thing <laughs> I drew became elements of all three of those projects because I had it on hand, it, it fits, and I had already done the work. And I, I think a lot of animators do that. And I would bet that that's what happened in this video, too. <laughs> so the, hard, the video for Hard Woman is sort of like a cleaning out of the drafts folder in the animation <laughs> process. I would think so, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, well, well I, I don't know how clear we were about this already, but this, this is absolutely computer animation. Uh, and that's very pivotal because this is 1985. W computer animation was not very advanced at this point. Uh, this video is roughly contemporary with the also computer animated video for Dire Straits, Money for Nothing, which also looks terrible. <laughs> and uh, on, a, on a strict technical level, I would say that the animation for Hard Woman is actually better, but I think the result somehow is an even stranger video experience. Yeah, the I mean, Money for Nothing, I, I mean, I think you can easily make a case for it being a a better song, even if oh, yeah. you know, some of the lyrics are gross, but um, it's um, it's uh, it, it's one of those videos that, uh, that that if you grew up watching MTV and VH1, Money for Nothing was always like put out there next to Video Killed the the Radio Star mm. uh, as being an example of like the look at the treasures in our vault, like look at <laughs> look at this fabulous video. So you. You kind of like, like I don't even think of that being bad uh, animation in Money for Nothing. Not that I've watched it in a very long time, but I was like kind of programmed by the channels to believe in it, you know? Mm -hmm. Robert, will you be sharing links to these videos on sumutamusic.com? Yes, I will and make sure I have them all embedded in a post there at semuta music.com. I, I would highly recommend people check out this video. In fact, um, both these videos we've talked about so far, I had only seen the, um, the shortened version of the Duran Duran video. Seeing the full-length version really is special. It's, it's, a, it's a treat. It's an epic. And then this video, too, I felt like I understood what this video was, but until Joe shared it, it's <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. Uh, can I read a brief? So I was trying to find something about the production of this video, and I found a short write-up in PC Mag by by K. Thor Jensen uh, that talks a little bit about uh, the the processing power that went into making this gem. Uh, Jensen writes, "Quote: CBS Records was eager to get the first ever solo album from Rolling Stones frontman Mick Jagger, and part of the deal was a sizable budget for music videos to promote. She's the boss." Again, that was the album. The clip for the single Hard Woman was, in 1985, one of the most expensive music videos ever produced, in part because of its advanced technology. Animators John Whitney Jr. and Gary Demos, along with ex-Disney animator Bill Croyer, used a Cray XMP supercomputer. <laughs> At the time, there were only six units in operation with five being permanently in the employ of the U.S. government and the defense industry. They used this computer to create a southwestern adobe house for a pair of pastel-lined CGI figures to dance through, with Jagger's visage composited into a flying diamond. Uh, is it in the diamond? I thought it was in the vase, like that his face shows up on a vase and yeah, then it, it expands. Does. Yeah, she it's awful looking. Yeah, yeah it looks <laughs> unbelievably bad. 
And I do want to make clear, I'm not just here to rag on really bad music videos today. My next piece is, is going to be on a music video that I really love. But, uh, but I guess that's it for me and for Hard Woman, unless you well, guys have anything else to add. My only question is, Joe, do you think all this could have been fixed if, if they released an arena edition of, uh, <laughs> yeah, of <this> Hard Woman? <laughs> it had some more uh, automotive crucifixion in it. Yeah, if, well, if we just had like five more minutes of this, it would all make sense. Yeah. But I, I think sp- especially now with Seth's insights, I feel like I really understand this one. This this video is just a calamity that must be witnessed. Now, the thing is, with, with your selection, Joe, I can understand why I never saw it because of the problems uh, inherent in it. Uh, but I'm really surprised that I have never seen Seth's selection. Uh, I, not even like on like Beavis and Butthead. It seems like that would have been prime <laughs> territory because they watched a lot of weird music videos. But Seth, go ahead and tell everybody about this one because this, this sucker's weird. I, I was so, so happy that when we first started talking about this, that you two had told me you had never seen this before because um, I think everyone who loves this video feels like a um, sort of like a personal kind of like debt that must be paid by sharing it with everyone else in the world because it it does feel so incredibly special to me um so the video itself is called possibly in michigan uh but the song is called animal cannibal by karen skladany how do i meet the strangest men they always seem to find me remember that time way back when i kissed And the year was 1983. So the director of this video was actually the person who kind of like put it all together. Her name was Cecilia Condit. And uh, more or less, she is an artist. She makes video art, visual art, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, In fact, she used to be uh, the uh, director of graduate studies in the Department of Film, Video, Animation, and New Genres at the University of uh, Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and also a professor at the school. So, So, I mean, she... She knows exactly what she's doing. And uh, in mm-hmm. fact, if you go into her uh, into her filmography, she's made many videos along the same lines of this video. But I guess I should kind of explain what it is before we get too, too much deeper. Here's a uh, description of the video from uh, Electronic Arts Intermix, which is a host of a lot of her video works uh, on the internet. Okay. Possibly in Michigan is an operatic fairy tale of cannibalism, desire, and dread in middle America, a densely collaged narrative in which beauty meets the beast in the surreal landscape of shopping mall suburbia. Two women with a penchant for violence and perfume take revenge on their animal-masked male persecutor. In this contemporary rendering of gothic enchantment, victim becomes aggressor and the familiar becomes the fantastic. Condit reworks popular narrative conventions using black humor, sing-song dialogue, and ironically gruesome images, constructing a comically grim fairy tale of dreamlike pursuit and sexual violence. She inverts traditional Freudian metaphors to impart a subversive voice to her transgressive heroines. Quote, I bite at the hand that feeds me, end quote. Possibly in Michigan is a classic tale of psychosexual horror retold as an irreverent fantasy of the other. I think you could look at this as a short, subversive slasher film set to music. Yeah. 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 And, and, but the music is so odd in such an appealing way. Um, so oh, yeah. Be- it's so good. Because this was 1983, um, it's got a very synth heavy soundtrack to this. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, the artist that we mentioned before, Karen Sklatany, she is the uh, writer of the song. She also is one of the stars inside this music video. Uh, basically, um, 
there are two women, uh, Jill Sands and uh, Karen Skladany, and then they are being followed by an odd man in a very strange mask played by Bill Bloom. And here's, here's how I was introduced to this video, which I think helps explain it. Someone sent this to me and said, hey, do you like Tim and Eric? And I said, yes. And they said, <laughs> then you should like this. And they sent it to me. And that, that was all I knew to begin with. And it has that feel. It has the feel of a Tim and Eric sketch, except for the fact that it's real. You know, that this is yeah. an actual thing that was put out into the world, made for enjoyment. And um, let's see, Joe, you and I were talking about basically the difference between something made intentionally bad versus something that is just kind of bad. Sure. I feel like because she has executed this version of creepy and strange in so many of her other videos, which I highly suggest uh, that people should go check them out. I think she knows exactly what she's doing. I think she is perhaps leaning into the um, creepier aspects of her limited budget and limited uh, um, perhaps technological, you know, uh, 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 tools at, at her availability. And so she's leaning into those things. So like when um, they're telling the story of a poodle being microwaved and then they cut to like a woman tearing apart a chicken, it's mm-hmm. like, I see what you're doing and you're, it works. You're, you're making me feel creeped out this entire time. And um, I, I'd like to hear your guys' opinions. What, what did you think seeing this for the first time? I, I thought this video was a home run. I, I, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, yeah, I see exactly what you're saying with the Tim and Eric type sensibility that a a humor based on uh, awkwardness and very limited commitment to the reality of the premise, uh, but executed with an infectiously enjoyable style. Uh, right. So, so yeah, I, I would call this a home run. Uh, I I see I see what you're t- saying with the Tim and Eric comparison, and I, and I do enjoy some of the humor of Tim and Eric. Uh, but it's like with, with, with Tim and Eric, like they're going to throw the cabbages into the audience, you know, and, and this film keeps the cabbages on stage, if that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> so th- this feels a little more to me, like self-contained as a piece that you can find humor in, but also has, uh, an inherent, um, seriousness to it, you know, mm-hmm. um, so uh, yeah, I, I really liked it, and it, it has it does have a lot of disturbing imagery in it in a way that I think a lot of people would not expect from a music video because I you know have, you know having done most of my music videos in the nineties uh, I, I think of stuff like Dean Carr when I think of of of, dis- of disturbing moments in music videos which is very um, has a different energy it's a little more throwing cabbages into the audience uh, versus this uh, but yeah this this is great I like I say I'm kind of surprised this. Did this ever air on MTV? I, I can't imagine it did. Here, here, here's a brief history of this kind of making it into the world. So um, uh, I'm sure in 1983, it probably like played the art house scene, played the gallery scene, you know, like, like it stayed to the art world. But in 1985, suddenly um, this was put on the 700 Club. Uh, you, you, guys, you guys more or less know what that is, right? It's like, yeah. Uh, it's Christian, Pat Robertson, right? Yes. Chris, Christian-centric talk show, you know, giving out news and advice and all that stuff. Complaining about culture. Yes. Oh, okay. They yeah. didn't do like a music video section where they're like, just music videos today. Here's, here's, here's I, this one. No, I think a standard part of that type of media is complaining about other media, saying like, can you imagine how, can look at how depraved this music video or TV show is. Oh, I see. So the first time that this, uh, this, this short film, this music video made it on television was on the 700 Club as they were doing exactly what Joe just said. They, they were particularly upset 
by the fact that um, this used um, funds from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Ohio Arts Council uh, because she was living mm-hmm. in Cleveland at the time, mm-hmm. and um, the the director uh, Cecilia Condit. And so they played it, and they, they like freeze framed on that part in the credits. Like, look at this government spending, <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> and this was during that moral panic Reagan era, you know, where yeah. anything that was yeah. provocative with art, in particular government funded art, was right. just unheard of and needed to be tisked, tisked, and all that kind of stuff. So. I think that's where it first got attention was as a, oh, we need to ban this, you know? I I find it hard to imagine that the Pat Robertson crowd also would really sort of like, would really get this video. Right. <laughs> yes. Think. Because, I mean, uh, and like you said, too, it is very similar to just a standard horror film, like in, in, in structure, you know, and um, not too dissimilar from the standard like DIY kind of um, bootleg cassette kind of thing that you would get and just be fascinated with in a, in a pure cinematic sense, too. Yeah. Uh, the, the story continues. Um, so that was when it first kind of broke into the world was in 1985 on the 700 Club. Uh, and then, you know, it, it went away as all things do. And then on Reddit in around the early 2010s, suddenly it started being passed around again. And um, it, it, it was kind of – I'm not sure I entirely understand when, um, when the youth, when the young culture, uh, Gen Z, refers to things as cursed. You, do, you guys have heard this and seen this around before? Yeah, I've seen it on Reddit before. I can't say I entirely understand the meaning behind when someone says that something is cursed. Perhaps they mean that it it sticks with you or that like... It now has become a part of you, whether you want it to or not, and it's it's uh, it's inside of you. But anyway, that's that's what I always think. I always imagine like a different ring video, right? That would have this in it instead of like strange wells and and people with towels pointing at things. Um, <laughs> uh, it would be I, clips from stuff like this. I I could be wrong, but my impression of the meaning of cursed is that it is uh, a stimulus which provokes a strong negative response, but one that is difficult to explain the the reasoning behind. Mm. Uh, so you can't just say like, you know, oh, strong negative response because it's violent or because, you know, the, the, the standard things. It's it's a kind of difficult to define revulsion. I, I like all these definitions, uh, but that's how it first started making its rounds on Reddit was as a quote unquote cursed video that uh, the folks would pass around and show to each other. And it got a lot of popularity on there. And then very recently, I'm talking about 2019 Part of this video, uh, specifically part of the audio soundtrack for it, uh, became extremely popular on TikTok. And hmm. um, do you know the part where – okay, so the, the, the video begins. You see uh, the stalker man following the two women as the song is playing, you know. Uh, and then at a certain point, whenever they have a lot of just kind of like in-between dialogue in this music video, they often sing it in a very strange way. Oh, yeah. Those are one of my favorite parts, yeah. Absolutely. So, so one of the, the first instances of that, they're standing at a perfume counter and they're like – it's like, here it is. That's my favorite perfume. <laughs> like all, all those parts – Mm-hmm. That audio has been clipped out and reused as these like reoccurring trends and challenges on TikTok. Um, so currently, uh, as, as of now at least, the hashtag possibly in Michigan has over 12 million views on TikTok. Oh, wow. And, and I've watched some of these. They're, they're fascinating. So like, for example, um, a big reoccurring theme I saw was discussing shoplifting. So um, while they're saying like, it's like, I'll wait for you by the door now. It's my favorite perfume. 
and so, like the, the the children will like lip sync these words as they're like kind of miming stealing something from Sephora. Like that's that's something very strange. And then it, um, if you have like an unconventional favorite scent, like let's say you're oh I don't know. Um, at like a car wash and like that hot wax smell is coming while you're washing your car and then they'll mime it's going that's my favorite perfume (laughs) and like that's that becomes a reoccurring theme like in in that standard um, TikTok and social media of videos it has become like mutated again and again and again to have all these different meanings and different uses all from this very strange video. And um, I saw an in- interview with the uh, director, Cecilia Condit, and she's mm-hmm. ecstatic about this. She loves it. She's like, this is this is great. Nice. Like, I'm, I'm very happy that the kids are having a good time. I love this video, too. Good on them. <laughs> well, it makes me want to check out her other work. You'll enjoy it. A- anyone who looks up any Cecilia Condit, it all has this same vibe. And in fact, uh, she... she has been and was doing she may be retired now i read something that said she was retired so i don't know but um she's been making videos for i'm going to say 30 years at least Mm -hmm. the most modern ones the ones made in like the 2000s still feel like this video which is astonishing like all brand new technology brand new subject matter but has this same vibe to it so i i I couldn't recommend it higher I demand that we devote at least 30% of the federal budget to Cecilia (laughs) Condit videos. (laughs) Take that, 700 Club. All right, is it time for our second round? All right. uh, The second video I I chose. uh, So so basically... Uh, I'd be kidding myself if I didn't include a tool video in one of my picks <laughs> because I'm a longtime tool fan and the visual artistry associated with the band, uh, you know, ha- has always been essential uh, to the entire um, um, enterprise, uh, you know, certainly in promoting the early uh, uh, material and uh, and helping it find an audience. And it's continued to be part of just sort of the, the artistic uh, expression uh, of the band, uh, particularly uh, as, as far as Adam Jones is concerned. He's the, the guitar player of Tool, uh, has always been a member of Tool, and uh, he's really the driving force behind music videos, visuals, any, anything visual uh, associated with the band. And so uh, I, had to, I had to choose one of them, so I went with uh, uh, Parabola from 2005. It, it, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a Tool song uh, directed by Adam Jones of the band, uh, though it's, it's interesting in that, as is typical with most Tool videos, the, the, the band is not seen in the video at all. Not only is the band not in this video, but someone from another band is in the video instead, uh, Tricky, uh, the, uh, the, the UK uh, trip-hop artist. That's interesting. Yeah. Usually, aren't their videos just mostly populated by kind of non-human, like, stop-motion critters? Yeah, yeah, especially like the first two uh, for uh, were directed by a guy named uh, Fred Stur, and they have a very distinctive, you know, dark um, stop motion animation style. Uh, it's you know familiar if anyone's familiar with like the Brothers K and so forth. It's very much in that 
in that style. I was always thinking it'd be funny if uh, they were trying to sell that tool wine and they had a commercial for the vineyard, but it was in that that animation style. <laughs> so it had like little uh, bandage creatures harvesting the grapes and all that. <laughs> well, you have to remember Maynard is the the wine guy and uh-huh. he has very little to do with the uh, the actual visual presentation of of the of the band. So Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, so, I've been tool schooled. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, Adam Jones, very interesting guy because he's a great musician, uh, but also a visual artist and a former special effects guy uh, who worked with Stan Winston on a number of films. So all told, his credits include uh, The Return of the Living Dead, Nightmares on Elm Street 4 and 5, Pet Cemetery, Ghostbuster 2, Predator 2, Terminator 2, uh, Batman Returns, Edward Scissorhands, Jurassic Park, and he did makeup on uh, on two films. I know I've seen one of these and you've seen the other. Uh, 1989's Dr. Caligari. Virtually nothing to do with the original Dr. Caligari. This is a, a kind of a weird uh, erotic art film. And then 1990's Demon Wind. Ooh, Demon Wind. That, that is not a good movie, but it does have some good demon fight scenes in it, if I recall. Oh, good. It has some martial arts where people are kicking the devil. <laughs> nice. Um, so this... This film, I, 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 this uh, well, music video rather, it has a number of wonderful weird elements in it. Um, it starts off with some like electron microscope weirdness, uh, like something's going on at a, at, a, at, a, at a micro level. And then you have this strange altar tended by a group of weird humanoids and suits who first slice open a gray apple with a sacred knife to reveal occult secrets within it. And, uh, and then they ignite flames from their fingertips, levitate and regurgitate a black circle on the table. And this is probably my favorite sequence in pretty much any music video because it's just so weird and divorced from anything of the natural world. Yeah, they're just like vomiting this black slime out of their mouths that makes geometric shapes. I guess it's a circle at first, but then we get more geometry. I was thinking in this video, it reminded me of like something like art that would be created by the cult of the Pythagoreans, you know, yeah. kind of weird sacred geometry. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that in um, in, in Tool's work, uh, the sacred geometry stuff. Um, I guess they're kind of summoning these weird spheres that are a part of the plot uh, in this. Because basically you end up with Tricky playing an alien humanoid with eyeball antennas uh-huh. who's menaced by <laughs> these gray floating balls. And he has a little homunculus friend in a pulsating iron mask. And this is stop motion animated and, and it looks looks awesome. But it's trying to help him. But then it gets eaten by the balls or killed by the balls. And then Tricky has to bisect the uh, the little homunculus. And then eventually Tricky grabs a leaf in a like a sacred forest. And he like elevates to a higher human form and has this psychedelic awakening that defeats the uh, the gray spheres forever. And that's pretty much the the sort of plot of the film, but it does have kind of like a narrative art flow to it. I really enjoyed the the part where it explores what if my eyelids had tentacles. Yeah, like that's it's it's essential. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think you guys both know that I always. I mean, I'm a real sucker for stop motion animation. I, I love the the Ray Harryhausen monsters and all that, and I I'm pretty sure that most of Adam Jones' video work is heavy on stop motion effects, unless I'm wrong. Um, maybe the, the more, the very recent videos have relied less on that and more on digital effects, but, Mm -hmm. but certainly like all the stuff in the nineties and then, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and into the, the, the current millennium a little bit as well have had some sort of stop motion element. Yeah. Because it makes sense because his roots are in the, uh, the practical effects world, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Oh, and I should also point out that the ending sequence in this utilizes the the artwork of Alex Gray. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, it's 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 wonderful. Uh, this is a I think I have this one on DVD. All right, Joe, what do you have for us? Okay, so I wanted to stick to the 1980s uh, because that just feels right for some reason. But I wanted to go in the opposite direction from Hard Woman. That was that was <laughs> a, a very much a failure. Love you, Mick Jagger, but that that horrible and uh, normie weird. Now I want to go like straight hard weird with a classic uh, well-known, but still supremely bizarre music video for an excellent hit song that is clearly straining with all of its might to be as weird as it possibly can (laughs) and succeeding to the max. And so the artist Herbie Hancock, the year 1983, the classic video for the song rocket. Uh, the, I see the directing credit usually seems to go to Kevin Godley, but I think maybe it was uh, Kevin Godley together with uh, Lol Cream, who had both been members of – they'd been part of a rock duo together, and they had both been members of uh, 10CC. But if you've never watched the video for Rocket, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think a lot of people who grew up in the in the 80s are familiar with it. They saw it at some point. But if you've never seen it, you should check this one out. This is just tops for me. Uh, it is – it's a great song to begin with. It's a, an instrumental track by Herbie Hancock, but it is the video is a house. I think it's one of these these you know British houses that were common in the eighties, full of mutilated, throbbing department store <laughs> mannequins having like seizures and these kind of suicidal. Uh, dance moves where they're slamming their body parts against things in various stages of dress. They've all got some kind of weird underwear on and Herbie Hancock only appearing on a TV screen within the video, like professor Brian oblivion from Videodrome. It also reminds me of the failed uh, cyborgs in RoboCop two. Yes. You see like tearing their own heads off and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Suicide robots all throughout, just like slamming into things and, uh, uh, I don't know. Th- th- this video is absolute madness, but it's so good. It- it's a great song. It's a great video, at least in my point of view. Of course, I hear you- your guys' thoughts. But uh, apparently it was inspired when when Kevin Godley and Lol Cream saw an art gallery exhibit of pneumatic robots by an artist named Jim Whiting. And they were like, huh, I wonder if we can put these in a video. And so you end up with like legs without a body, just doing these chorus line kicks. And you get, uh, you know, head slamming into things like this sort of uh, mannequin body in a bed doing like the exorcist flops and then <laughs> legs walking through a room without a body. Uh, I, I know I'm forgetting things. This bizarre bird creature sort of pecking through a window. Oh, yeah, that's a good yeah. one. And the, the uh, lady with the weird goggle eyes. Oh, my God. It's so good. And it, it just like doesn't stop like every moment of this video is to the max weird and i feel like has not been superseded i mean people have tried to make really weird videos in the decades since and and this one still is like king of the mountain for me Uh, another thing that i find very fascinating about this video is that to my memory and to my knowledge this is a very popular video yeah when people discuss like the best music videos of all time favorite music videos this one comes up often and i'm i i I, i'm with you joe i think it's absolutely beautiful and really strange and fascinating and, and like there's always something new to discover. Like just by like staring at a different corner of the screen on your next viewing, you're going to see like, oh, are those some like, you know, odd robot lungs up there? What What's happening? And um, yeah. 
I, I'm always very pleased when something very, very strange sneaks into mainstream popular culture and just gets beloved. I, I think it's yeah. rare but wonderful. I think it won all kinds of like MTV awards, MTV right. video awards. I don't know what those things are, but you know, like popular it was it was considered popular entertainment, not like stuff for weirdos. <laughs> but also but on paper, it's an instrumental track. Herbie Hancock is an electronic, you know, uh, I, I guess like uh, I I'll call him a jazz musician, but I'm sure he's mm-hmm. much more complex in his own description of himself. Transcends genres. Yeah. And and but like on paper, that doesn't make any sense. That there's a supremely weird pneumatic robot music video of this instrumental electronic jazz song and it's beloved and it's the yeah. greatest and it's everywhere and it wins awards that's fantastic it's so rare yeah yeah totally uh i was actually watching an interview with herbie hancock where he talks about this video and he pointed out something that i didn't notice the first time but he's absolutely right he says you know beyond just all the weirdness and the throbbing robots there are these interesting video effects choices that actually synchronize with the audio and heighten the impact of the song. Mm. Like uh, Hancock himself points out that at the parts of the song where there are record scratches in the track, the video actually does a synchronized tape rewind effect with the record scratches uh, that sort of like, I don't know, redoubles the effect of the music. Yeah, I, I think I noticed this too. Um, I think it's very noticeable in a spot where you said there's the legs without a body walking through a room and the yeah. and like the legs kind of start moving forward and start moving backward because the the tape. Oh, kind of like in the um, the uh, Star Wars Holiday Special when um, <laughs> the repair robot is kind of glitching, but much yeah. much better. <laughs> I, Ooh, Harvey Corman. Oh no. <laughs> I think one of the really interesting things about this music video is that, like, I I mean, I'm not super versed in Herbie Hancock, but I don't think of Herbie Hancock as a weird artist. So this mm. music video, um, you know, very accomplished artist and one that one whose work, again, transcends genres. But like this, this music video at once feels appropriate, but also far weirder than it needs to be. Um in a way that reminds yeah. me a little bit of the music videos of Peter Gabriel, where, mm. you know, Peter Gabriel, I, I mean, is definitely a weirder guy and has uh, uh, definitely has roots in more performance artist type stuff. But a lot of times I feel like his music videos were far weirder than the sonic material that they grew out of. Right. Let Land of Confusion yeah, yeah, yeah. being chief among them. That's... You guys remember that one with all the puppets? Uh, is, that a, the, is that a Genesis one? That might have been Phil Collins era, but it definitely is a great example yes. of, a, of a music video that's far weirder than, <laughs> than it needed to be for the song. You're right. You're right. That, 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 was, uh, that was Phil Collins era Genesis. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Before we move on, I know we were going to mention a few runners up. Do you guys mind if I uh, just mention a couple real quick? Please. Go for it. Okay. So one category that I'd like to go for is uh, what I would call minimalist weird. And that is, can a can a music video be supremely weird without being crammed with all kinds of stuff going on, all kinds of like wild animations and robots going berserk and all that? Uh, can a music video be extremely weird with not much more than a straightforward performance? And I think the answer is yes. Uh, I mean, one, one example of this I was thinking about uh, is that there, there, there's some PJ Harvey video from the 90s that's just her singing into the camera but it has like profoundly bizarre imagery i think it's the video for man size but then there's another one uh that i was just watching the other day which is uh grace jones music video for i've seen that face before libertango which is a fantastic song to begin with uh you know great 
creepy song with sort of like a French uh, musical influences. And the video is not cluttered with all kinds of stuff going on. It's actually mostly just a very straightforward performance into the camera. Uh, it does have some cool sort of costume props. I'm not sure what you'd call them. At the beginning of the video, Grace Jones has these huge uh, brightly colored pyramids attached to her face, uh, forming like facial features. So like one is like a, a, a beard and one is a nose and one is a hat. And, uh, and yet this music video manages to have this fantastic transcendently weird energy just through the, the music and Joan's performance. Grace Jones is, um, one of the greatest. I mean, she, yeah. she is definitely, um, a still living David Bowie, you know? Yeah. yeah. She's electric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, to make reference uh, to Record Store Society, uh, the episode that uh, published pr- last week, the week before this episode, um, they uh, Grace Jones was in my co-host Tara's top five concerts she ever seen, and she oh. had ever seen, and and the description of that concert sounds absolutely amazing. And uh, yeah, yeah uh, Grace Jones, wow. Yeah, I bet seeing her live would be awesome uh, because yeah, she she has transfixing like wizard power in her eyes in this video, <laughs> just like <laughs> otherworldly, uh, very very cool. Uh, and so that's worth checking out. But the other one I would tie in, so so that that's minimalist weird. The last one I would say is movie tie-in weird. Weird by the presence of elements from a movie that's that the song is tying in with. There, I gotta go with Prince <laughs> Bat Dance. Uh, I know this is not among Prince's greatest musical output. Uh, of course, I love Prince, but uh, the, the, this song, you know, the Batman soundtrack, I think is pretty widely considered maybe the nadir of... Uh, of the Prince arc, but nevertheless, this video is just bananas and the video really elevates the song. <laughs> this is where he's half Batman, half Joker. Yes. Am I remembering that right? He's yeah. like Joker, but simultaneously Joker and Two-Face because he's divided down the middle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though Two-Face is not in the Batman movie that was being promoted here. And, and he's also sort of Batman, like he's doing his music, but he, he appears to be doing it at, like the console in the bat cave. So he's also sort of Bruce Wayne in the bat cave. And then there are dancers dressed up as bats and dancers dressed up as Kim Basinger from the movie. And it is very, very odd and uh, weirdly erotic in a way that Batman is not. <laughs> and, uh, it's, uh, I mean, I guess even the worst Prince song is better than most other music, but it, it takes some of Prince's lesser musical work and really takes it to, to a level that's highly entertaining. He had some great music videos, for sure. Yeah. I feel the need to interject, though, in that um, Two-Face was in a very small way in that movie because we had Billy D. Williams playing Harvey Dent. That's right. Yes. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) I I was actually really looking forward to that version of Two-Face. And uh, we eventually got it in the Lego Batman movie, but it was just a brief... Oh, that's right. We did. We did. (laughs) It was a very brief element, but uh, but still, I was glad glad that Billy D. Williams finally got to play (laughs) Two-Face. Finally some payoff on that. Yeah. Well, uh, I already mentioned my uh, runners runners up, I think, because uh, one of them was that uh, Puppet Masters uh, video, DJ Muggs, uh, directed by Dean Carr. Another one I had was a Peter Gabriel video, Shock the Monkey. And I th- oh, the other one was Rockwell's uh, Somebody's Watching Me, directed mm-hmm. by Francis Delia. But we have one more full-fledged selection to go here, and that's uh, that's your second selection, Seth. This one feels to me like it's the um, the most obvious selection. If someone were to say to me, hey, what's a strange music video? Like, to me, this is like when it comes to quality, execution, um, timelessness, uh, the quality of the song, too. I have to go with Come to Daddy by Aphex Twin. 
Uh, this was a Chris Cunningham video. Chris Cunningham uh, was another one of those directors that had a DVD in the director's label, um, uh, DVD box sets. And it's so good. Uh, if, if you've never seen it, um, here, here's a quick version of the story. So there's an, uh, an elderly woman and she's walking her dog in a, a rundown industrial setting because, of course, it's a music video, <laughs> as we've discussed. Mm-hmm. Must yeah. be uh, industrial. Uh, her dog urinates on a television, and then suddenly you see uh, Richard D. James, aka Aphex Twin, in the uh, in the television screen. Uh, the, the screen then kind of changes and mutates, and then a very pale, very tall, very thin being crawls out of the screen. He summons a gang of children, all with Richard D. James's face, and they all just kind of wreak havoc running around, hitting things with sticks, yelling in the old lady's face. <laughs> like, yeah. just very, very strange things just happen back to back to back. And yet it doesn't feel random and it doesn't feel cheap. It feels very well planned, very well executed. Like, the production values on this are extremely high. And mm-hmm. y- you don't really see the gaps anywhere, even, even this many years later. I believe this was a 1997 music video. And I think it's just, like, little rubber masks on the children and little people wearing uh, the the, the uh, Richard D. James face, you know, the very mm-hmm. iconic Aphex Twin face. Yeah, you, you even if you haven't listened to Aphex Twin and don't know who Richard D. James is, you may very well have seen his face as a meme on the internet. If you've seen, like, a, a guy with red hair doing a super creepy huge grin. <laughs> yes, uh, I, I think I actually knew that face before I ever knew what Aphex Twin sounded like. Because that face is on the cover of at least two or three of the album covers for Aphex Twin. And, and actually, I, I found an explanation from James about that. And I, I thought it was actually really interesting. Uh, here, here's a quote from him. Quote, I did it because the thing in techno you weren't supposed to do was to be recognized and stuff. The sort of unwritten rule was that you can't put your face on the sleeve. It has to be like a circuit board or something. Therefore, I put my face on the sleeve. That's why I originally did it. But then I got carried away. <laughs> <laughs> that that basically sums up a lot in uh, Richard D. James's career. Right. Uh, you know, and, and it's fitting that his this big face of his, I think it predates the troll face that you see on the internet yeah, now. Because yeah. a lot, but a lot of his stuff was kind of a troll move. Like even this track, I'm to understand, he kind of did it as as a troll movie it's just kind of like what if i made a you know a, a popular song what if i made something that was kind of you know in a different genre and then he made it and then, um you know a lot of a lot of his work is like that where he's he, he is producing just phenomenal especially his ambient work uh, selected ambient work albums are, are especially incredible uh but then he'll have tracks like these that are uh, you know getting into different genres and and the video here is is also capturing that same energy of essentially messing with people yeah i mean this video is pretty effective as a short horror film and it is just the it, it, it's Clearly intentionally alienating a, a cre- an intentionally creepy song, an intentionally creepy video full of monsters and, and a million copies of Richard James's face. And it made me think about how it's kind of like being John Malkovich world, except it's Richard D. James. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's, it's very well d- directed. Uh, you know, this and other fil- uh, 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 videos that Chris Cunningham did for, for Aphex Twin, they really make me wish we could have seen the, um, the film adaptation of, of William Gibson's Neuromancer that, uh, that Cunningham was apparently attached to for, for a number of years and never came to fruition. I'm sure it would have been great. And also speaking of uh, Richard D. James slipping his face into weird places, have you guys ever seen the uh, spectrogram art 
that Aphex yep. Twin did. Mm-hmm. It's so wonderful. So. But, but basically what he did, uh, a spectrogram, if people don't know, um, it's sort of a um, visualization of audio. It's like looking at the uh, the waves in like usually most um, audio editing software. If there's any place in an Aphex Twin album where it sounds particularly strange, if you pop that into a spectrogram reader, just any kind of audio uh, software that, that shows you those things – it's probably Richard D. James's face that he inserted <laughs> into the audio. And okay. they're beautiful. If you Google Spectrogram Aphex Twin, you will see his face in his music. Like literally, his face is in his music. And uh, what, what a great trick, you know? Uh, this reminds me of, I guess, what would come much later is like uh, uh, the the comedian mashup musician Neil Ciceraga putting Shrek and stuff into his spectrograms. Oh, oh, I haven't seen that. I should look into that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then I, I guess a couple that I um, really wanted to uh, sneak in here, but man, obviously we can talk about this all day. Um, speaking of which, if you guys do want to hear us continue talking about this, I have good news for you. This is part one of a crossover episode. Uh, right on the same day that this episode is publishing, Robert and Joe are going to be guests on my podcast, Record Store Society, and we're going to be discussing the top five music videos of all time. So they're going to be joining me over there. So if, if you've enjoyed hearing us talk about music videos, you're, you're going down memory lane and want to hear more, please go find Record Store Society on your podcatcher of choice. And we're going to continue this conversation. It's going to be a lot of fun with, uh, with my co-host Tara. But anyway... So I really wanted to mention, and I'll just say them quickly because we're running out of time, uh, Ballad of Buckethead by Buckethead, wonderful music video. Hmm. Uh, Rabbit in Your Headlights by Uncle, love that oh, one. Oh, that's terrific. Very good. Uh, Black Hole Sun by Soundgarden was a lot of fun. And uh, R.C. Bates, right? Yes, yes. And um, and Where's Your Head At by Basement Jacks. Uh, that, that's when we were talking about uh, just music videos with monkeys in general before this. And I, I suppose I'll throw one more in there. Uh, Weapon of Choice by Fatboy Slim. That's the one where you oh, have... so good. Yeah, the one where you have uh, Christopher Walken uh, doing the best soft shoe anyone could ever do and uh, just being utterly surprised by how good of a dancer that uh, Christopher Walken is. All right, well, this has been fun. Seth... Uh, Promote Record Store one more time. Uh, to, the record, to tell us where they can find your podcast. Absolutely. Um, it's a weekly show every Friday. Uh, just go and go to iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, any of those places. Type in Record Store Society or visit recordstoresociety.com. Uh, it, like I said, it's basically just a music talk show. Myself and my co-host Tara, quote unquote, work at a record store. And then our customers, aka our guests, come in and we talk music for a long, long time. If you're real nerdy about music and you just like music conversation, we're making this show exactly and specifically for you. And uh, and like I said, uh, Robert and Joe are going to be uh, our guests on today's episode, the day you're hearing this podcast this conversation is going to continue right over there on Record Store Society. So come listen to me and Tara talk to Robert and Joe some more. And uh, oh, and actually, in fact, this Sunday, we will be re-airing that episode, the Record Store Society episode, in this feed. So if you're feeling lazy and you don't want to go hunt down a new <laughs> podcast, that's fine. Check out the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed this Sunday. And that second part of this episode will be airing. So you don't have to move around too much if you don't want to. Oh, but but anyway, I'm running late for my record store job. Wink. So I'm going to run out the door now, add a little sound effect, walk, 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 door slam, and I'm, I'm gone. Goodbye.
Wow, I can't wait to put on our Richard D. James masks and rob Seth's record store. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, to appearing on, on the, the podcast. Uh, this, was a, this was a fun chat. Uh, again, I'll put all these, um, I'll put, I'll put in embedded versions of these on the blog for anyone to check out or, you know, or certainly look them up uh, yourself. They're all like officially hosted on YouTube. Uh, and if you want to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, you can find this every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind feed. Wherever you get this podcast, wherever you find the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, we just ask that you rate, review and subscribe. Huge thanks to Seth for uh, not just producing this episode, but for appearing on it. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode, uh, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 